0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this morning. We continue our series on the first book of Kings, and we come to chapter 13. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. He cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord. "O altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who are now make offerings here And human bones will be burned on you. That same day, the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart and the ashes on it will be poured out. When King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Seize him. But the hand he stretched out toward the man shriveled up so that he could not pull it back. Also, the altar was split apart and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God by the word of the Lord. Then the king said to the man of God, Intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. So the man of God interceded with the Lord and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. The king said to the man of God, Come home with me and have something to eat, and I will give you a gift. But the man of God answered the king, Even if you were to give me half your possessions, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water here. For I was commanded by the word of the Lord, You must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. So he took another road and did not return by the way he had come to Bethel. Now there was a certain old prophet living in Bethel whose sons came and told him all that the man of God had done there that day. They also told their father what he had said to the king. Their father asked them, which way did he go? And his son showed him which road the man of God from Judah had taken. So he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. And when they had saddled the donkey for him, he mounted it and rode after the man of God. He found him sitting under an oak tree and asked, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? I am, he replied. So the prophet said to him, Come home with me and eat. The man of God said, I cannot turn back and go with you, nor can I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. I have been told by the word of the Lord You must not eat bread or drink water there or return by the way you came. The old prophet answered, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel said to me by the word of the Lord, Bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. But he was lying to him. So the man of God returned with him and ate And drank in his house. While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back. He cried out to the man of God who had come from Judah, this is what the Lord says. You have defied the word of the Lord and have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. You came back and ate bread and drank water in the place For he told you not to eat or drink. Therefore, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your fathers. When the man of God had finished eating and drinking, the prophet who had brought him back saddled his donkey for him. As he went on his way, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown down on the road with both the donkey and the lion standing beside it. Some people who passed by saw the body thrown down there with the lion standing beside the body. And they went and reported it in the city where the old prophet lived. When the prophet who had brought him back from his journey heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who defied the word of the Lord. The Lord has given him over to the lion, which has mauled him and killed him as the word of the Lord had warned him. The prophet said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. And they did so. Then he went out and found the body thrown down on the road with the donkey and the lion standing beside it. The lion had neither eaten the body nor mauled the donkey. So the prophet picked up the body of the man of God, laid it on the donkey and brought it back to his own city to mourn for him and bury him. Then he laid the body in his own tomb and they mourned over him and said, Oh, my brother. After burying him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the message declared by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places in the towns of Samaria will certainly come true. Even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways. But once more appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places this was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. And we turn to 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 15 to 20. Even the altar at Bethel, the high place made by Jeroboam, son of Nabat, who had caused Israel to sin, even that altar and high place he demolished. He burned the high place and ground it to powder and burned the Asherah pole also. Then Josiah looked around, and when he saw the tombs that were there on the hillside, he had the bones removed from them and burned on the altar to defile it in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by the man of God who foretold these things. The king asked, what is that tombstone I see? The men of the city said, it marks the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and pronounced against the altar of Bethel the very things you have done to it. Leave it alone, he said. Don't let anyone disturb his bones. So they spared his bones and those of the prophet who had come from Samaria. Just as he had done at Bethel, Josiah removed and defiled all the shrines at the high places that the kings of Israel had built in the towns of Samaria that had provoked the Lord to anger. Josiah slaughtered all the priests of those high places on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he went back to Jerusalem. The love a congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, on October the 26th, 1881, in Tombstone, Arizona. There occurred one of the most famous showdowns or confrontations in the history of the Old West. On the side of Law and Order were the three Earp brothers, led by Wyatt Earp, along with Doc Holliday. And on the other side, there were the forces of lawlessness and chaos, a large number of mostly nameless outlaws. And by the time the dust had settled and the gunfire had stopped, the forces of evil had been trounced and defeated. The gunfight at the O.K. Corral was history, and another showdown became famous. And I say another because actually history is full of showdowns. Time and again, you come across critical moments when two opposing forces collide. It can be the case of two armies going head-to-head, or two persons, or two groups of people. There seems to come a moment in time when the talking stops and the action begins. And the result, sometimes neither side wins and it ends up in a stalemate, but at other times one side wins soundly and the other side is roundly defeated. And that, beloved, you can say, is also what happens here in our text of this morning. Here in 1 Kings chapter 13, it is, so to speak, biblical showdown time. And of course... This is not the only such time recorded in the Bible. As a matter of fact, there are rather many, Think, for example, of Moses versus Pharaoh, of David versus Saul, of Jesus versus Caiaphas, of Peter versus the Sanhedrin. The list goes on and on. And yet, in some ways, the strangest showdown of all may well be here in our text of this morning. For here we have God on one side and King Jeroboam on the other. Here we have the Lord God Almighty, a man of God, an obstinate king, a shriveled hand, an old prophet, a strange command, a frozen donkey and an immobilized lion. Indeed, here we have the oddest cast of characters imaginable, and also one of the oddest stories in the entire Old Testament. But nevertheless, through it all, one thing becomes very clear, and that is that it is showdown time in Israel. So this morning, I'd like to preach to you on the theme, showdown at Bethel we we'll look at the confrontation, the aftermath, and the fallout. Well, but on the last time, you may remember when we left King Jeroboam, he was at Bethel. If you look back at 1 Kings 12, verse 32, there it says the king was offering sacrifices on the altar, and then it adds, and this he did at Bethel. Now, Bethel is a famous place. In biblical times, it became famous as the result of a special meeting between Jacob and the Lord his God. You can read about it in Genesis 28. There, Jacob stopped for the night, made a stone into a pillow, went to sleep, and had a dream. Only it was a rather remarkable dream, all about a ladder a ladder standing on the earth, reaching all the way up into heaven, with angels ascending and descending upon it, and the Lord God standing above it all. And one more thing, for in that dream God spoke, and he promised Jacob the land of Canaan. And furthermore, he promised never to leave him or to forsake him or the land. And as for Jacob's reaction to all of this, to this revelation, he awoke, he turned his pillow into a pillar to mark the place, and he called the place Bethel, the house of God. Well now, it beloved, is that this House of God that King Jeroboam launches a new cult. He sets up one of his two golden calves there. He erects a new altar there. He installs a new priesthood. And he himself even offers sacrifices there. In short, the king does one forbidden thing after another. Why you can say that in some ways Jeroboam waves as it were a red flag here in the face of God. For who forbids all idol worship but the Lord in the second commandment? Who alone tells people that they may erect altars but God? Who alone may serve at priests but the men of Levi whom God has appointed? And who may offer sacrifices, but only God's ordained priests. But Jeroboam ignores all of this. And now note that as chapter 13 opens, where is the king but at Bethel? And what is the king about to do? He's about to offer sacrifice Himself, But then suddenly, suddenly he's interrupted. For a voice from somewhere cries out and says, Oh, altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who now make offerings there and human bones will be burned on you. Just as the king is about to come to the highest point of his so-called bull session, he stopped in his tracks. Someone dares, as it were, to throw a pail of cold water on his majesty's religious display and performance. But there is more. For this, someone also follows up his prediction with a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart and the ashes on it will be poured out. Well, as you can imagine, all of this, this interruption infuriates King Jeroboam. He looks around at the assembled throng. He identifies the culprit. He stretches out his hand, points at him, and yells, seize him. But yet no sinner, do the words, leave his lips. And his hand shrivels up. Our text even adds, he couldn't pull it back. It's all shriveled up. So you got to catch the picture, if you will. It's not being done for you in technicolor or whatever. You've got to catch the biblical picture. Here's the king, dressed, no doubt, in his finery, maybe even with his gold crown on his head. His hand is stretched out, but instead of a perfectly formed hand, it's a shriveled, deformed, pathetic-looking specimen. And no doubt the king looks at his hand in horror and and he tries to pull it back to hide it because it's kind of embarrassing, right? But he can't. No matter how hard he tugs, he can't move it. Everyone can see it. No one misses out. But then at the same time, as the king is desperately tugging at his damaged hand, something else happens. It says in verse 5, the altar was split apart and his ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God, by the word of the Lord. Just in case you think the man of God is a fake and his prophecy is a delusion. Look at the king's hand. And look at the altar. Both testify to the veracity, the reliability of his words. But of course, that's not all. For as we have read as well from 2 Kings chapter 23... And what does 2 Kings 23 tell us? Well, it shows us how later on King Josiah came along and did precisely what this man of God had prophesied all about. He ground up the altar and burned it. He, He ground it into powder. He burned human bones of the sacrificing priests upon it. And So we ask ourselves, what does all of this teach us? What does it even teach us today? So many, many years later, centuries later. Well, I think for one beloved, surely it teaches and reminds us that anyone who takes on God in any kind of confrontation whatsoever should be prepared to lose. You know, Jeroboam figured that he could merely go his own way, create his own cult, erect his own altars, appoint his own priests, offer his own sacrifices, do his own thing. Openly and arrogantly, he rejects and insults the Lord and he figures that he can get away with it because he's king. Only how mistaken he is. And indeed, how mistaken by extension are all those who insult the Lord, ignore His will, pervert His worship, and defame His name. For God will unleash His judgment. Sooner or later, He will do it. Because no one can take on God and hope to win. You see, first of all, our text is speaking about the triumphs of the power and person of our God. But then as well, we also learn something precious and frightening about God's word. For here we are reminded once again that we should never ever take it for granted. You know, when the Israelites heard this man of God, no doubt some of them raised their eyebrows and snickered and mocked and basically dismissed his prophecy out of hand. You know, that's what people often do. Often people do it today as well. They hear the word of God, but they shove it aside. All this business about Christ coming back, all of this stuff about judgment, all of this... News about a new heaven and a new earth. What nonsense. What silliness. Who believes that kind of stuff today? My beloved, the shriveled hand. The split altar. And the later actions of King Josiah are a clear and startling Testimony to the fact that the word of our God is no ordinary word. It's never without fulfillment. It always comes to pass. And so you can say we learn here about God's person and God's word, but we also learn here something else and that you can say is about God's mercy. You would think that after everything that King Jeroboam has done, he is, to use the proverbial expression, toast. But suddenly the bragging king becomes the desperate king, and he pleads with the man of God to intercede for him. And he does. He intercedes in the king's hand. He's miraculously restored and whole again. And he can pull it back. What does that tell you? Well, it tells you in a most graphic manner that the Lord is willing to give even King Jeroboam another chance. That the time of repentance is not yet over it's still possible to repent and to return because the Lord is merciful indeed. And how good that is for him. And by the way, how good that is for us today as well. For how often do we not botch it up? How often do we not sin and insult the Lord? In many and various ways we too cross the line. Nevertheless, the day of grace, forgiveness, and mercy isn't over. Thanks to who our God is, thanks to who his Son, Jesus Christ, is, and what he has done, it is not over. The offer of grace still stands. And we need to avail ourselves of it. Now, of course, at this point, you might think the story is over. Only it's not. As a matter of fact, at this point, the story takes a rather strange twist. For once, his hand is restored, Jeroboam becomes all warm and fuzzy with regard to the man of God. He invites him over, offers him a meal and a gift. It's payback time. But notice the man of God will have none of it. He tells the king, sorry, there's no way I can go with you. I, I can't go home to your palace. I can't share a meal with you. The Lord has very specifically commanded me not to do any of this stuff. I'm also supposed to go home by another way. And that's what he does. But as he's going, we're introduced to yet another character who's called an old prophet. No other name is given, just an old prophet. The old prophet hears from his sons what has happened that day and he also hears about the king's invite and the fact that the man of God has turned it down. Undeterred, he has his son saddle a donkey. Up he goes and away he goes after him and he finds him sitting under an oak tree. And what does he do? He invites the man of God to come to his house. Even though he knows the man of God has declined Jeroboam's invite, he extends his own. The man of God, however, notice, turns him down as well, even specifically telling him about God's word of prohibition. The prophet, however, is not only old, he's also stubborn. And he's devious. For he lies. And he makes up a story about an angel having talked to him in order to invite the man of God into his house. Well, when the man of God hears that, he relents. And he goes with him. But when they arrive at the home of the old prophet and they're eating their meal... The old prophet receives a true word from God. And in it, the man of God is accused of having defied the word of the Lord, of having not kept the command of God. And he's told that his body is not going to be buried in the tomb of his fathers. Shortly after this, the man of God departs On the way home, however, he's met by a lion who kills him. But that's not all, for the lion, instead of having breakfast, remains at the scene. And indeed, the body of the old man lies in the road. The donkey stands there, the lion stands there, and nothing moves. They're standing there like monuments and sentinels. What a sight, what a strange sight that must have been. Guess that in due time some people come by, see it, raise their eyebrows and go to the next city and report on it. Well, maybe now you begin to see why I said this story takes kind of a strange twist, right? Right? And indeed, we, we read all of this and, and we kind of scratch our heads and, and we have all kinds of questions. What's the meaning of this? And was it fair that the man of God was judged and killed? Was he not due by a lie? And should the old prophet not feel the brunt of God's displeasure instead of the man of God? And what about that donkey and that lion? What's going on here? Well, beloved, in all of this, in all of these details, we shouldn't miss the main point. And the main point has to do with the word of the Lord. For what this story wants to teach Israel and us as well, that it is the word of the Lord that stands supreme and may never be disobeyed. Why did the man of God not ask the Lord about this angel? And this supposed new message. Or why didn't he tell the old prophet, well, an angel may have talked to you, but unless an angel talks to me and tells me something different, I'm not going to go against what the Lord has said. Indeed, beloved, look closely and you'll see this entire chapter really revolves around that expression, the word of the Lord. It begins in verse 2 already. He cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord. Verse 5, the altar was split by the word of the Lord. Verse 9, I was commanded by the word of the Lord. Verse 18, the word of the Lord. Verse 20, they were sitting at the table and the word of the Lord came. You see, this man of God is, as it were, an embodiment of the word of the Lord. He has to proclaim it. He has to proclaim it faithfully and truly. He has to obey it and to live it out. He is, as it were, an advertisement to all Israel about the greatness and the veracity And the judgment of the word of the Lord. And the people know this. So when in the end the man of God allows himself to be duped and goes against the word of the Lord, there is no other recourse. Because the word of the Lord more than anything else represents the credibility of God and that has to be maintained must be shown to be true in all things. Why God even uses an immobilized donkey and a paralyzed lion as witnesses to the fact that His Word must at all costs be upheld. Israel needed to learn that Be reminded of that. And probably, beloved, we do too. You know, today we have the Word of God in complete written form. We can and we should consult it every day. It should be, as it were, our daily teacher and instructor. And at the same time, still today, we need to be aware of those who come along and say that they've heard an angel or seen an angel or whatever. Indeed, that's very popular, even among Christians, to say that somehow they had some kind of special revelation of God, as if they have a direct pipeline to the Lord. Now, beloved, whenever that conflicts with the written word of the Lord, ignore it. Don't go there. Stick to what God has really and truly revealed to you. Because that alone represents a true, sure, and certain guide. But, beloved, having said all of that, notice the story is not quite over. There are two reactions now to note as well. The first has to do with the old prophet. Upon hearing that the man of God has been killed by the lion, he tells his sons to saddle another donkey. He must have had a few. And off he goes again. And when he finds the body of the man of God, he takes it home and mourns over it and buries it, notice, in his own tomb. And next, he leaves instructions for his sons that when he dies, he wants to be buried beside the man of God. And finally, he declares that the message of the man of God is true. And it will surely, surely come to pass. So what's this? What are we to make of that? Well, I think and I want to be careful here, because I may be saying too much, but the actions seem to indicate it that, that here we have a man who repents of his lying. And he then tries to make amends as best as he possibly can. And finally, he even goes on public record as saying and affirming the word of the Lord. That's the first reaction, one of repentance and remorse insofar as it can be expressed. But notice there's another reaction in our text, and that's one that zeroes in on King Jeroboam. What's he learned? What's he learned from his hand? What's he learned from the news of the demise of the prophet? What impact does all of that have on his life? What changes does it bring about? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He just keeps right on appointing illegal priests. He keeps on promoting his illegal cult. He goes full steam in the direction of downfall and destruction. So what is this? My beloved, it's a reminder of how the word of God cuts two ways. It either brings you to repentance and back to the Lord, or it hardens your heart and brings you to judgment. And in Jeroboam's case, it's very clear. He hardens his heart. The mercy that God has shown to him has no impact on him whatsoever. His hand, the altar, the prophet, it doesn't matter. It makes not one stitch of difference. And you know, in closing, all of this begs the question. It begged the question for Israel then, and it begs the question for us today. Just what has the mercy of God and the even greater mercy of Jesus Christ that we experience today taught us Does it lead us to repentance, return, and restoration? Or does it lead us to a hardening in sin and to a sure and certain judgment? Beloved, do you see how an old, even very strange story has a modern application? It asks all of us, how how are you handling The word of the Lord, the word of truth, and the word of life. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.